Hello and welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company this Wednesday, the 15th of July. I'm your host, Lucy Zellich, and it's my pleasure to welcome my co-host over at SBS HQ, Nick Stoll, aka Stolich. Welcome to you, son. How are you? I'm very good and very excited to be using this new technology and I'm just praying that it lasts the hour. Let's see. <laughs> it is a new look, the world game here on Wednesdays. Uh, you know, we've had to respond to what have been very challenging times throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, but we're bringing you a fancy new show to go with our fancy new guest here this week, Simon Hill, the great sports commentator, great football commentator. Welcome to you, Simon. How are you? Great to be with you guys. It's my first appearance on the World Game for SBS in 14 years, and I think I've probably got a few more grey hairs, certainly a lot more hairs on my chin than I had when I lost a bit. So great to be with you guys. Oh, it's great to have you back. I think I saw a couple of com comments coming through the SBS reunion, so it's nice to have you on board, Simon. Um, you know, I know it's been a, a pretty challenging period for everybody right across the board here, but uh, can I speak really frankly and say that I was quite shocked when you put up that statement not all that long ago saying that you would be leaving Fox Sports and that you would no longer be commentating with them. Um, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, and I've said it to you multiple times, off air and now on air again, I believe you are the best football commentator that Australia has ever seen in its history uh, and I was really saddened to learn that you wouldn't be a part of the A-League coverage of which you have become a stalwart and an icon of for so many years effectively since its inception but can you talk us through a little bit behind the decision and um, and why it was time for you to move on? Well first of all thank you for those comments Lucy uh, you're very kind there's a lot of people have been very kind they've sent me a lot of very nice messages and you as well Nick you sent me one too so thank you very much. Uh, and a lot of other people besides. Um, look, why the decision was made, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a question for Fox Sports, really, not me. I think the uh, official version is uh, due to budget cuts. Um, that's their official version. But uh, look, you know, what, what I would say is <clears throat> I had 14 years at Fox Sports. Um, most of them were, were very happy ones. Uh, I had the opportunity to do so many wonderful things and live so many great experiences, not just the domestic games, the grand finals, the big blues, the derbies, uh, but also overseas with the Socceroos, major tournaments, World Cup qualifiers in crazy places like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Lebanon, etc., uh, etc. Et so, you know, I was very fortunate and while the decision was not mine and it was a bit of a shock, uh, in the end, it was probably no surprise. Um, it, it's unfortunate, and obviously, I'm very uh, sorry and upset in many ways that I that I won't be calling A League games um, for Fox Sports because that was a big part of my life, and uh, I hope I'm not finished calling A League games. Well, I'm not. As you've seen, I've you know signed a radio deal at least in the short term. Um, so I hope to continue calling A-League games. But, you know, we, we built a loyal audience on, on Fox Sports for the A-League. I hope I played a part in that. Um, I hope I made a contribution. It's unfortunate it's ended, you know, the way it did. But as I say, that, that's, you know, that's a question for Fox Sports, really, not me. Um, it, it was a difficult week when it happened. Um, I was sustained. I have to say, by so much love from the football community, and that's what it felt like. And I really do thank people from the bottom of my heart for that because it was a tough week or two. Um, 
but fortunately since then you know the, the, the phone has started to ring a bit and I've, I've got a, a lot of exciting projects that I'm now involved with and as you say it frees me up to you know talk about the game I love uh, and be on wonderful shows like this with, with lovely people like you so you know swings and roundabouts life is full of ups and downs and um, I'm on the way back baby Oh, yes, you are, Simon Hill. And nobody could keep you down for too long because, like I said, you are the best football commentator that we have in the country and so hugely talented. I mean, one of my greatest fears was that we would lose you entirely. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know what's going to happen? He's going to go back to the UK. The Premier League are going to snap him up. And, of course, he'll go on to do far bigger and better things than he ever could have imagined. But uh, I still think that that's something potentially that, you know, could be waiting for you, that could be on the cards. But you mentioned uh, the radio deal that you've recently signed with SEN and you will be calling the remainder of the A-League games uh, this season. But looking beyond that, Simon, um, you know, you said you're working on some exciting projects as well. You've got a podcast that you're doing with Craig Moore, as well as the great spider, Jelko uh, Kalats, which is brilliant. Um, but can you give us some insight into, into what else is coming up for you? Um, well, those are the, you know, the, the interesting projects that I've, I've started off doing. Uh, the, the SEN radio deal will begin actually in the finals. I'm, I'm calling some of the finals games, not, not the rest of the regular season games. So that will start when the finals kick in. Uh, we've just recorded uh, literally today our first episode of our, of our new podcast, which I'm very excited about, Shim, Spider and so much more with uh, obviously the play on Craig Moore. Um, so that goes up, I hope, later on today. Uh, it's all a bit seat of the pants stuff, as you know, with podcasts because, uh, you know, old, uh, old fuddy-duddies like me are not really across this new technology. So I'm having a, to, to learn as I go along. Um, but it's exciting. And there's, there's various other things coming up. Um, all I can say is uh, on Friday I'll be hosting a pregame show for Sydney FC. Um, uh, about half an hour show ahead of their game, Sydney and Wellington. So I'll actually be at the ground uh, at uh, Jubilee Stadium on Friday. So if you, if you are going to be there, the limited number of tickets, come up and say hello. Um, and there'll be, how can I put this? There'll be another couple of announcements coming up over the next few weeks. I, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to jinx it and um, I don't want to break the confidences of the, of the people that I'm talking to. But um yeah, this is not the end of it. And my intention is, listen, you mentioned me going back to the UK. Look, I mean, that was a possibility and still might be, to be honest, at some point. But as you know, I'm evangelical about the game in this country. and I'm so determined that we're going to restart the conversation on this game. Um, not that you guys haven't done a great job. You have, uh, and others like Optus as well. Um, but we need to start having this conversation and really reshaping our future as a sport. And I do want to be a part of that. I hope I've got something to contribute. And if at some point I don't, I'm sure I'll get the tap on the shoulder and uh, people say, thanks very much. Off you go. And that will be you know, the point when I go back to the UK. But uh, for now, I'm sticking around for a little while. Good. We want you sticking around. Um, before I defer to Stolich to bombard you with a few questions as well, uh, you wrote a fantastic article that you'd penned in The Guardian just yesterday, and I thought, thank goodness, finally we've got Simon Hill, the voice of reason, rationality, and a great football mind able to, to weigh in on the conversations that we've all been having uh, about the game for really the last 30 years, but they've certainly heated up since the pandemic struck. But you, you had a really powerful quote in there uh, further down the line where you said, as fans struggle to make themselves heard, Fox 
Fox tightened the screw on discussing important issues which needed airing. While non-football journalists were given free reign to have a crack at soccer, those actually paid to cover the sport were neutered. Um, it really struck a chord with me because I think the one thing that we've really been lacking um, and, and, and for some time now is strong voices coming out and articulating their feelings about the state of the game. I mean, we at SBS have been doing it for so long. Of course, Craig Foster has been doing it for in excess of 30 years, trying to keep that man at bay. But, um, you know, I felt like we were really missing more voices being added to the context of the conversation. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you meant in that piece? Yeah, first of all, Lucy, I, you know, I totally agree that what's what the game has been missing is a variety of opinions, not just all about, you know, my opinion, but... Uh, to, for the game to progress forward, you need to have an open and honest conversation. And, uh, you know, for too long, uh, there's not been enough voices. Um, you know, that's partly, um, I have to say, uh, a result of the failure of the game to, to penetrate the, the mainstream. Uh, we haven't done well enough as a sport. And, you know, the, uh, the game's leaders have to take a fair bit of responsibility for that. They have failed the game over the last, you know, few years. Um, we've been stuck in this, you know, cycle of, of governance wars and is it going to be independent as a competition or is it not? And, you know, where's the money coming from? All the age-old questions that we've had for so many years in this sport. Um, and really what our job is, and you know this, Lucy and Mick, as journalists, football journalists, is to hold those people in power to account. Now, to be fair, you guys have tried to do that. Now, I wasn't able to do that for the last three or four years at Fox. I don't know why. Again, that's that's not for me to speculate. That That's a question for Fox Sports to answer. But I wasn't able to do that. Um, so it was frustrating, not only personally, because, you know, obviously, as you know, I'm a man with opinions, but also on behalf of the game, because I think the game desperately needed not just my opinions, but that of others as well. You know, so many people have got so much to contribute, but uh, the environment was almost stagnant. Uh, there was there was no conversation. Um, so I, I felt that was a point that needed to be made. I'm trying not to make it, you know, personal against anybody in particular. Uh, I'm not trying to make it any sort of a vendetta uh, about me per se. This was in general about the health of the game, and the health of the game is dependent upon public interest. And that public interest has died, or well, not died, but it's you know it's withered away over the last few years. A lot of it has been the fault of the game itself because of the politics of the game, but also you know the conversation in the general media has has died away as well. And you know you look at the people. I've said this a couple of times. The people who've left the football media over the last few years, Les, of course, we know no fault of. Lesson that is no longer with us. Mike Cockrell, the same thing. Craig Foster, your colleague, has moved on to doing different things. Ray Gatt from The Australian has, has now pretty much retired. David Davutovich from The Herald Sun. Tom Smithies from uh, The Daily Telegraph. Marco Monteverdi at The Courier Mail. Val Miliaccio, Rob Greenwood at The Adelaide Advertiser. Daniel Garb, Carly Abno, Sebastian Hafford, even going back further, Jesse Fink, David Corrin. All these people have disappeared from our game. Where are the voices? And they haven't been replaced. Um, so, you know, the amount of voices left in the mainstream media covering football in this country, we're down to you guys, which is great that you're still there. Vince uh, Rigari, Don Bossi, um, I see Joe Barton, I think, has, has taken over as the football correspondent for The Telegraph, which is good. Uh, Mick Lynch down in Melbourne. 
after that, I'm going, whoa, who else is there? Can you tell me? Because there ain't many. Um, and that's not healthy for our game. If we've got no conversation, no people to lead that conversation, no opinions on the game, then the sport exists in a vacuum, let's be honest. It's one of the reasons I started the podcast. And I think you made mention of it also that uh, the game is really under threat of becoming marginalised unless we start to make those great changes. And a lot of that has occurred with what you're referring to there, this vacuum of, of, of a lack of voices that we have within the game. Simon, it's almost a scary question to ask, and, I'm, and I want to be delicate with it, but it seems as though there's an agenda to try and get anyone that has a passion for football, that's committed to, to writing about football, out of the conversation entirely. Am, am I crazy for thinking that? Am I a conspiracy theorist? I honestly don't know, Lucy, but, I mean, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Um, look, I don't know why those decisions have been taken. I'm obviously not party to those, um, you know, meetings or, or decisions around employment. I, I do think, you know, in large parts, and I've said this already, the game has to take a lot of the blame itself because it hasn't been run well. It hasn't succeeded. Uh, it hasn't hit its its KPIs. Let's be brutally honest. Crowds have gone down. TV ratings are not good. Um, we've had an awful lot of politics and you know factionalism, which has dogged this game for so many years. So this is you know you can't lay the, the all the blame at the door of the media and say, well, you're not covering our game properly. That that's a part of it. But the game has to take the responsibility. And basically look at that environment now, and I'm pretty sure James Johnson will be across this. He must be looking at the football media landscape and going, wow, there's nobody left. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's it's a problem that football has to solve. And I think, you know, long term, the best way to solve it is internally. We've got to do it ourselves as a sport. And that means the FFA and the clubs, you know, maybe running its own OTT broadcast platform, certainly doing more of its own coverage, both written and in terms of video and podcasts and everything else, stuff around the games. Um, I think that's a future for all sports, quite frankly. But in the short term, I think they've got to get about building that. Mm -hmm. Stolich, over to you. Some questions for Simon? Yeah, I, I think uh, they're all great points. And I think as well, we talked about, I think last week, the the brain drain of Australian football that you referred to, Simon, and, and there was so many names that have been lost to the game. It's such a shame that you know, okay, business has changed and whatever, but there aren't new positions opening for them. But even as well, I'm, I'm worried for a lot of the young kind of generation coming through. There's a lot of good, talented young people who really want to be involved in football media, but the opportunities just aren't there. They're just not opening up for them to go in. And I think it is something that you need to, you know, be practicing every day and you need to, you know, have those kind of early years where you're just working hard and getting better at your craft. And I and I wonder what would your advice be for kind of those people maybe graduating uni around now in journalism, sports journalism? You know, the reality is there aren't that many opportunities. What would your advice be to them? Uh, choose another career. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 being, I'm being suspicious. I don't mean that. <laughs> I think... Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate, as you can tell by the grey beard, you know, I've got into my 50s and I've, I've had 30 years in, in full-time employment in this industry, but I think the next generation is not going to have that in the same way. What I would say is that I think opportunities are going to open up in a different way over the next few years. Um, the traditional media landscape is changing irrevocably. We're seeing that already. Um, so I think the future is going to be 
probably a lot more uh, fragmented. I think we're going to see people, uh, rather than being employed full-time, say, by Fox Sport or FBS or, uh, you know, Channel 7 or a Channel 9, I think there'll be, you know, bits of work around uh, the game that you, you put together in a portfolio and that earns you your full-time living. For those people who are clever enough, talented enough uh, to be able to do that, whether we're going to see... Uh, traditional careers in the way that we understand them today that are going to last 20, 30, 40 years. I very much doubt that because I think the media landscape is, you know, because of the innovation in technology, it has, has changed and I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. Now, that does open up opportunities. So I think it's about, the advice I would give, it's, it's about being as valuable as you can possibly be across a whole different range of spheres. And, you know, you guys do this, uh, you host shows, you report, you write, um, you do podcasts, you, you know, if you're me, you do commentary. Uh, so, you, you know, you make yourself as valuable as you can possibly be across a whole range of different disciplines. And, of course, you've got to be tech savvy, of course, which is the bit I'm struggling with, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you know, you've got to have all, like, all those skill bases. And if you're good enough, then... You learn a living, but I don't think it'll be like uh, here's your contract for the next three years, which is what we've all been used to. Mm. Uh, I want to make a special mention to all of the guests tuning in today. If you are just joining us, welcome along to the World Game Live. I'm your host, Lucy Zellick, alongside me, Nick Stoll, and our very special guest, Simon Hill. Make sure you send in your questions. We are joining you via Facebook and Twitter, so it's all pretty self-explanatory. Make sure uh, you know you type your questions in below and we'll get to them as best as we can. Um, Alex Sivkarovsky, uh, good afternoon to you, Alex, via Facebook. The league needs to be ahead of the game and start thinking digital. A streaming service is a better option rather than pay tv thanks so much for your comment alex thoughts around that simon there's been a lot of discussion around and, and someone that you're working with on the podcast craig moore former socceroo is also a part of this golden generation panel that's been formed and had this very conversation about an ffa streaming service that could potentially uh be viable for the league going forward what are your thoughts around that yeah, well, as I say, I think this is going to be the future, not just for football, but for all sports, uh, you know, within the next decades. The, 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 the tricky problem with uh, streaming at the moment is it requires a, a lot of initial investment, um, you know, to get that service up and running because, you know, they have to have a lot of hardware, you have to have a lot of new technology, uh, you have to build it, you have to con uh, construct the teams, the people that are going to work on this. If you're going to show... For example, six A-League games every week, which it will be with the addition of, you know, MacArthur next season. And if you're going to go, you know, dip down into the MPL or if we're going to have a second division, that's a lot of games to cover. Um, at the moment, just to give you an example, you know, when Fox Sports cover an A-League game, they will do so with a multitude of cameras, maybe for a big game, as many as 12, 14 cameras. Now, that all costs money. Um, it, it's an expensive exercise to produce, uh, you know, live outside broadcasts. Now, the, the innovation of new technology means that the cost of that is starting to come down. There are different ways and means of, of broadcasting live sporting events, and football can take advantage of that. So I think it is our long-term future. I think where we're at at the moment is I think they're looking for that investment. Um, you have to build it. You have to also Sorry, I'm just hearing myself coming back there. Sorry, that was my fault. That was my that fault doing one off? little mind check. Get a grip, First on. problem. <laughs> um, and I think what we can do in the interim is 
you know, we, we can build towards that by starting to, you know, maybe put some content on the existing sites. We have the My Football app. Obviously, we've got the FFA website, the club websites. I feel we can maybe start to drive, uh, you know, some of that traffic towards those sites uh, to discuss the game uh, and get people used to, you know, visiting those particular areas to have their football conversations rather than, you know, the more traditional means. So I think it's all a process. Are we ready to go tomorrow? Probably not. Um, but do we have to be ready to go next July once the initial Fox contract ends? Maybe. Another question coming through from Oz Gunje. Simon, which game would you have wanted to commentate the most before your time? Oh, before my time. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably, oh, well, maybe England's World Cup win, 1966. So I would have yeah. taken that one. <laughs> um, would you haven't had the iconic line, they think it's all over, it is now? Yeah, I don't know whether I'd have delivered Kenneth Wollstone-Holmes' great line. I hope I would have found something like that. But, uh, yeah, I would say either that one or maybe the 1956 FA Cup final between Man City and Birmingham where Bert Troutman broke his neck. Or maybe the 1934 one when we won the FA Cup for the first time. I don't know if I've ever shown you this. This picture behind me here. Wow. That is actually a uh, first edition print from uh, an old newspaper, which is City winning the cup in 1934. There we go. The Illustrated No longer exists, that newspaper, but uh, <laughs> I'll mean, take one of those, I think. <laughs> that is brilliant. What were some of your highlights across the A-League? Um, I think, obviously, you know, the grand finals were, were very special because those are the, the games that really resonate with people. The 2011 10-11 one between Brisbane and the Mariners, wow, that was crazy good. Um, but others, like I remember the 06-07 grand final, victory Adelaide, 55,000. I remember looking around uh, Telstra Dome as it was then and thinking, we've made it. And the Prime Minister was there. If you remember, he got a kiss on the head from Christian Sarkis, handing out the medal. I thought, we've done it. We've done it. You know, we've cracked it. Uh, maybe we didn't. But at the time, it felt like it. Um, so I think, you know, grand finals, big blues, the Sydney victory games really resonate with people. Um, and you really feel that Sydney-Melbourne thing, which I love. Uh, feels a proper football rivalry and the derbies of course you know Wanderers Sydney City victory uh, even the traditional rivalry uh, you know Victory Adelaide's a special fixture the F3 derby maybe a little bit less so today but certainly in the early days it was it was great um, so there are lots of fantastic memories and I've been fortunate enough to you know be behind the mic for a lot of them. Here's another question before I defer back to you, Stolich, from Michael Donnarumma via Facebook. Good afternoon to you, Michael. Great to have your company, mate. He wants to know, how do you think more juniors playing football can become more invested in the A-League and local football instead of all of overseas? It's a good question. Um, and it's one that we've been grappling with, not just in the A-League era, but probably before that as well. Um, I think it's about the clubs putting down roots in their communities. And to be fair, a lot of the NSL clubs did do that. Um, I think, you know, just to give you a couple of examples, and I'm not having a crack at these clubs because they've done very well in the A-League gear, but if you take Sydney FC and Melbourne Victory, arguably the two biggest clubs in the country, I know others will disagree, sorry, but, you know, you say, Sydney FC, for example, 
what do they own? Do they own a stadium? No. Do they own a training ground? No. no. Do they even own an office? I don't think. What, where are their roots in the community? Where's the, where's the shrine that you go and pray to every week? You know, you go to, to England and Europe. I go to Etihad Stadium. There's a, a, a mosaic of Joe Mercer as I walk down the Mancunian way and, sorry, the, the way to the ground. Uh, there's pictures of icons like Mike Summerby, Colin Bell, Francis Lee. Uh, the stadium is wrapped in sky blue with all the supporters clubs from around the world. You know, it's, it's home. That's where City are. It, the whole place reeks of Man City and feels the same. Old Trafford's the same. The Emirates, Spurs' new stadium, same in Italy, Germany, France, all over the world. Uh, you know, many years ago, I went to La Bombonera in um, Buenos Aires. Goodness me, if that doesn't speak Boca Juniors to you when you walk through the door, nothing does. That's football. Now, when I go to A-League grounds, with respect to most of them in Australia, you know, for example, I go to Suncorp Stadium um, and I have to dodge around the Wally Lewis statue and, I, you know, I tip my hat to the Queensland Reds banner. Um, there's rugby league lines all over the pitch um, and it looks like what it is. We're squatters in other people's homes. Um, and I know that it's difficult for clubs to build and pay for their own stadiums, but we've got to have some sense of ownership because without true bricks and mortar, we're just nomads you know, moving from place to place. And we don't have that intrinsic foot in the community. And I think once we get that, then, you know, people sort of cleave around that. Um, and that match day experience is so important for supporters. And some, cl some clubs do it better than others. Adelaide's great. Perth is pretty good. Um, you know, Newcastle, not too bad. But I think overall, th that experience of going to a home of football is something that we really miss here. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Like there's some cool things that clubs do around the world. Like, for example, Atalanta uh, in Italy, whenever a child is born in a local hospital uh, in Bergamo, they are immediately mm. given a onesie with Atalanta all over it. Now, this is like mm. a very simple, but it just gives you a thing from like from birth. You know, they're kind of, you know, and you could do that, a deal with, you know, a local hospital, just a, a onesie. You know, it, it's just one thing that you can do. You know, another way is, is sending, um, you know, people to local schools and maybe giving out a few free tickets and, you know, because if you give out a, a kid a free ticket, well, the adult has to obviously go with them and then they will buy a ticket. And I remember, for example, when I was a kid, uh, we'd have like the Roosters come to our school and I didn't particularly like rugby league or whatever, but, and it wasn't even a star player. It was just the fact that there was someone from this club that you'd seen on TV and you, everyone got excited. And then suddenly it felt like the whole school was supporting this team. So there's lots of things that clubs can do. Um, you know, obviously it's hard with limited resources and stuff, but I just think, uh, it, it, you know, there are many small things that we can do that actually can have over time a big effect. You know, Nick, some of this is generational as well because history takes time and our A-League clubs are only, you know, 15 years old, most of them. So uh, the NSL clubs, you know, had a lot of that. Um, that's why I'm a, a believer in, you know, having a national second division, uniting the tiers, making that football culture uh, that is so much a part of Europe, South America, everywhere else, a part of our culture here. I know the arguments against it. I know we have a big country and that travel's difficult and all the rest of it. But I think at some point we've got to grasp the nettle on this and say, you know, it doesn't matter if AFL or Rugby League don't do it. So what? If it's about our sports, if that's intrinsic to our football culture, 
then let's do it um, because that's what we are. We, we, you know, we keep banging. We are football. Well, let's prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question coming through through from Rodrigo Torres. Good afternoon to you, Rodrigo. Are JJ's top 11 initiatives realistic? It seems that a lot of them are outside of the FFA's circle of influence. Are we better served by smaller, more achievable goals, something we can actually do? Simon? Um, well, look, I like the concept of the 11 principles. Um, I think, you know, JJ has pretty much ticked every box with, with what he's said. My two big questions, I'm sure everybody else has the same thing. <clears throat> same with the whole of football plan five years ago. Mm. Great ideas. What's the timeline and who's paying? And without the answer to those two questions, that really it's, it's another wish list, uh, which is great, but we need to actually put detail around it and say we're going to do this by 2021 or 2022 or whenever it is. Um, and this is how we're going to fund it. This is how it's going to be done. So, look, in fairness to James Johnson, I think this, this, the release of this 11 principles was supposed to be a discussion paper to get the discussion started. Well, he's done that. So, you know, for, first, first tick. Um, but on the back of that, once we've had the discussion, I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the FFA and the clubs uh, if they're going to be independent. And, you know, we still don't have a time frame for that even. Uh, they've got to start putting plans into place and start executing someone. We all know what the vision is. We all know what we want. When are we going to start executing and putting these initiatives into place and who's going to pay for it? Simon, what's been your assessment of how football has been managed throughout this COVID-19 period? Um, look, I know that uh, Greg O'Rourke has sort of borne the brunt of... Uh, you know, a lot of fans' frustrations and players' frustrations as well over the, you know, the travel debacle that, um, you know, threatened to derail the resumption of the A-League. <clears throat> I've, I've got a bit of sympathy for Greg. I think it's a, A, it's a tough job. Um, B, I think the goal the goalposts kept shifting as far as I'm uh, aware. You know, government said one thing one week and then changed their mind the next. Difficult uh, to, you know, to read the tea leaves on a day-by-day -day basis because the COVID situation has obviously been you know, in flocks every single day, particularly in Victoria. And the other the other aspects, and again, this goes back to my earlier point, uh, you know, the, the A-League and football as a code is not one that is flush with cash. And everybody's saying, oh, they should have been moved to New South Wales three weeks ago. Well, yeah, I don't disagree. Who's paying for that? Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not a, a game that is overrun with money. The other codes could maybe afford to do that because they have much bigger TV deals. Their, their clubs are, you know, they're better run financially than, than ours are. So I think while Greg has copped it on the chin, and maybe in some respects, you know, rightly so, he is the head of the A-League after all. He knows that that's his job. Um, but I've got a bit of sympathy as well. I think it was, you know, as I say, a tough situation. Fingers crossed they're in New South Wales now. They're doing their quarantine. Uh, and let's hope that COVID doesn't derail the rest of the season. Well, that has been one of the big talking points now was a result of this, uh, you know, pandemic, I guess, rearing its ugly head as part of a second wave in Victoria now. There are rumours that uh, effectively, and not even rumours, but, um, you know, there's tangible evidence uh, that suggests that we could be going through the same thing here in New South Wales. And on the subject of the A-League, we'll, we'll move through some news stories now uh, while we've got you with Simon, but there is uh, some theories that uh, we could be moving the A-League to Queensland in order to try and get ahead of all of this 
this and the A-League bosses are eyeing uh, Queensland as the potential option for this. Uh, what are your views around that? I mean, I know that what you, I hear what you're saying entirely. I mean, I feel sympathy for Greg, but I also feel as though this is something that we're in a situation where we're reacting to it. And, and of course, we've had to because of how, you know, fluid the situation has been. Um, but I, I feel as though that, that AFL and NRL were a lot more proactive as opposed to, to football here. Um, is this something that we should strongly be considering now or should we just sort of batten down the hatches and, and try and get the season played out and wait to see what, what occurs? Uh, well, Lucy, ju just on your first point, yeah, I mean, the NRL and the AFL uh, got their ducks in a row a lot earlier. And the, the reason for that is that their TV deal was tied up a lot earlier. Um, you know, we were waiting on Fox Sports. Were they going to re-sign? Were they not? If there was no TV deal, I'm not sure we would have even had a resumption of the season. You know, the rumour is, is that some of the clubs didn't want to compete, complete the season because they didn't have any money to do so by spending on a hub, you know, over the other side of the country. For example, if you're Perth Glory or an Adelaide United. So, you know, we were behind the eight ball on that because we had to wait a long time before that deal was finally signed. Once it was in place, yeah, I agree that, again, you know, that they could have been moved earlier, but the caveat to that is where was the money coming from to move them and, and you know, put them up all up in accommodation for another potentially two, three weeks. I know that if you speak to David Poray up in, in Queensland, CEO of Brisbane Raw, he was saying weeks ago, the hub should be in Queensland. You know, we've got no COVID cases or very few. Um, it should have always been here. And I've got a bit of sympathy for that view. I think with respect to the A-League though and, and the FFA, if you've got four clubs that come from New South Wales, which we do, Sydney FC, Wanderers, Mariners, Newcastle Jets, it made sense because they were the least, the most amount of teams that didn't need to travel. So if you were going to go to, you know, to Queensland to start off with, then you've got pretty much every team bar Brisbane Road on the road and you've got to find accommodation for them. So New South Wales made sense, um, but it's good that they've got a contingency plan in place. I just, you know, hope and pray that we manage to get this uh, condensed season finish because uh, we, we need to, let's be honest, for sporting integrity and you know, for the fans who've been starved of football as well. Uh, let's get this thing finished and, and then look forward towards next season. Stolich, the competition is set to resume this Friday. Uh, that will be the first match played between Sydney FC and Wellington Phoenix. I mean, there's been so much conjecture in the lead-up to this, all the issues that Simon has listed there with respect to the, the pay TV deal that they were still trying to negotiate. Of course, the collective bargaining agreements with the players, uh, their contracts expiring at the end of May and having to look to extend those. I mean, we had so many extenuating circumstances surrounding the resumption of the competition. But can you see it finally happening? Can you see this season finally being played out i can see it finally starting i i'm worried about the it completing the whole season um you know we, we're having a spike in new south wales already um hopefully we're not going to copy uh melbourne to, which is it seems like there's a two-week delay on this thing so that's a big big worry and obviously if we have a spike like melbourne has seen in sydney it's going to be hard to justify the continuation of football even with teams in quarantine and all that now the hope is that yes obviously that we we do get to complete this and and i'm so looking forward to it i feel like every even if it delays one more day, it just it actually adds to my anticipation so much so. Um, but, yeah, I, I think uh, hopefully it does get done. But I don't think there is a guarantee that the season will be completed because, uh, you know, it depends on things that are outside the FA's control, which is 
the spike in COVID cases. I think the one thing actually, sorry, is just, you know, maybe we've got a better chance of completing our season than the other codes do because if this COVID thing spikes, then it's going to affect all the sports. We've only got, what is it, 32 games to, to, to finish? So you know, it's a race to get over the line, but if anybody can do it, maybe we're in the best position as a sport to be able to complete it. Yeah, so the new fixtures, uh, I think they just released them a couple of hours ago, 27 matches to be played over 34 days starting uh, July 17th on Friday night, and the final series has been moved back a week. So you're right, it is more condensed and we, we should hopefully uh, be able to get it done. But, you know, it's going to be interesting. And to see also what, I'm really interested to see what these teams look like. We're seeing so many players kind of pull out and, you know, the the fact that you have like as well the five sub rule as well. So you're actually going to see more players get opportunities. So it's going to be very interesting. I think the greatest concern for me before we move on to the story that you just mentioned there about this mass exodus that we're seeing from the A-League concerning players and staff is the, the players' welfare and their well-being, Simon. I think one of the greatest concerns for me is the injury rate that we've seen, for example, across NRL. I mean, I'm not a massive NRL fan, but I will have it on in the background. I mean, I'd like to think that I, you know, enjoy a host of other sports in addition to my love for football, but not obviously it's not as ferocious. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we've seen up to 13 players across the NRL pull up with ACL injuries. Now, we know that this is something that obviously is reared its ugly head with a lot of players uh, across football in general. But, um, you know, can you anticipate, uh, you know, how this is going to play out with respect to that, Simon? Well, I don't think anybody can anticipate. Um, you know, clearly it's been an odd uh, few months. And as much as you can train and get physically fit to play football at the elite level, the one thing that you can't legislate for is that match sharpness. Um, so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure we'll see in those, certainly those first few weeks, um, be the odd time missed tackle. Um, <clears throat> there'll be players pulling up with soft tissue injuries, not because they're not fit, but because they're not quite in that, you know, elite groove to, to play at the very top level. Um, so I, th I think, yeah, I mean, there, there probably will be some injuries. I don't think there's any escape in that fact. Um, strangely enough, you know, the fact that we're now in winter might help that a little bit because it's cooler. Um, the pitches are not as rock hard. There's a bit of rain around in New South Wales might soften the, you know, the surface up a bit and stop some of those soft tissue injuries. But, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that we'll get a little spike. Hopefully, you know, not too big. But I, think, I just think it's inevitable. Mm. Oh, I was just... I was yeah. just going to say, I spoke to Dr. Craig Duncan yesterday, works uh, previously with the Socceroos in FC. I think he still consults with Brisbane Raw and stuff. He was telling me, because I asked him about this, and he said that uh, teams will have to plan in their rotations. So they'll have to be looking at, okay, th uh, th it'll be quite hard for a team to play the same 11, obviously, in such a compact time, especially because they're not used to it. We're much more used to playing one game a week. He said, so they'll be they'll be planning, okay, we can afford to take him out for that game and all that kind of stuff. So obviously something to keep an eye on. That's the good thing yeah. in between games. Unless we have to drag them all up to Queensland now again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
recently, and it's uh, it's basically filing through a whole host of uh, players and, and staff that have made the decision not to come back for the remainder of season. But the latest is that Perth Glory captain Diego Castro is citing coronavirus fears for opting out of the A-League's resumption. The Spanish marquee has informed his club that playing while being based in a Sydney hub is an unacceptable health risk for himself and his family. And uh, and it was released via a statement. Uh, Tony Pinata, the chief executive, confirmed it to yesterday. Unfortunately, Diego will not be available for the remainder of the season, but we understand this personal decision that he has come to after careful consideration. Simon, your reaction to this? Well, it's a, it's a pity, isn't it? And, you know, he's not the only big name that is going to be ruled out of, of uh, the remainder of the campaign. Obviously, Ola Toivonen has, has gone back to, uh, to Sweden and time with Malmo. Um, Robbie Fowler is not coming back as Brisbane Raw coach. We know that. Uh, Markel Susayeta has returned back to Spain. So, you know, I think there's a few big names that are going to be missing, which is unfortunate, and we'll miss them. But, you know, one door closes, another one opens, and it opens the door, as we've, you know, Nick's pointed out already, for some younger talent to get an opportunity, particularly with the extended bench rule as well. So, you know, we, we, that's what part of what our, our league is about, is, is handing opportunities to good young players. This is their opportunity. Um, let's see if they take it. Some other names to add to that also. <clears throat> that uh, Pagnotis Cornet of Western United mm. as well as Gertian Verbeek of Adelaide United, uh, they won't be returning as well. Um, thoughts around this going forward? I mean, when we start to consider not just finishing this season but looking ahead to the following season and add to that that now we've got a significantly reduced broadcaster contribution in all of this, I mean, I'm worried that we won't be able to really attract those big-name players. But in the same vein, I'm thinking, well, I wonder which new talent we could also potentially unearth. And could we be going back to that kind of model where we saw in the National Soccer League you've got more 15- and 16-year-old players coming out and making their debut for senior football? And perhaps this could be the blessing in disguise well look you know why not um you know the other thing that james johnson said he wants to fix is <clears throat> excuse me the lack of a, a domestic transfer system which means you know clubs in the npl they get rewarded properly for developing young players um you know that that's something that needs to be fixed as well so you know, there's no doubt that the A-League should be the first shop window for those young kids, and we need to give them more opportunities. Strangely enough, I actually think this current season, before it was uh, somewhat aborted in March, had, had given a lot of good opportunities to, to some, you know, good young kids. Obviously, if, this, if uh, the salary cap is going to be reduced, which is the rumour next year due to the reduction in the broadcast deal, then it's going to restrict our ability to, to bring in big-name marquees. However, you know, what we may see is a loosening of the cap in other ways and maybe bigger clubs, more clubs with more financial resources. I'm talking about Melbourne City, Sydney FC, the Wanderers, um, uh, Melbourne Victory. You know, maybe they can bring in and lead the way in terms of, of big-name marquees. Um, you know, big-name marquees aren't the panacea uh, for this league, but, you know, they can help. Um, in, in attracting a bit of short-term interest, but you can't just do it with one player. We've seen that in the past. Victory brought in Keisuke Honda, terrific player, big name, but he was the only one. You can't sell a league on that. You know, you need you need a whole handful of them. As we saw when we had Del Piero, Heskey, Shinji Ono, and a few others to sort of, you know, uh, back Del Piero up. So, you know, maybe the big the bigger clubs have to lead the way on this and, and uh, you know, dip, dip into their pockets and, 
and get some big name players over to here to, to give us that little bit of magic dust. But at the end of the day, and I go back to this, it's about connecting with your community. It's not about the player who wears the shirt. It's the badge on the front. That's why I wear this top because I was in, you know, indoctrinated in it when I was six years old. Doesn't matter who plays for City, um, you know, be they good, bad, or indifferent. It's it's about the badge, and that's what we have to, you know, really stress for for this country for our clubs. I think it's an important point you make because, and, and Stolich, I'll bring this um, issue to you as well. Is that uh, one of the biggest criticisms that we've had in the A League is that uh, you know we don't have an ecosystem conducive enough to allowing players to remain at clubs on long term basis. I mean, we're always complaining about this recycling effect and seeing clubs and players you know bounce through one another. Uh, you know, some players have been up through up to seven clubs, but it's through no fault of the players. I think it's necessarily, it really comes down to the kind of environment that we've provided for them. And much of that comes from the salary cap. But how do you get fans to be invested in the badge versus being invested in the player? I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, I think it's always good when you can uh, give kind of young local talent a thing. I think if you look at kind of Adelaide, you know, it's a good example of how proud they would be of the Torre brothers and how, you know, someone from their city is representing them. I, I think that can uh, do it. And, and it's like uh, Simon was saying, it builds over time. I mean, I sometimes talk to my uh, friends Argentinian friends and I say like oh you know you have a lot of player turnover you know as soon as a player is good in Argentina they go straight to Europe and he says well yeah because actually the the match day experience is why we're there is because you know we're going to watch thousands of players play for you know whatever team it is River, Boca, Newell's Old Boys but that's not why we go we go because every week we are there with our friends jumping in the terrace singing and we are going to sing the same songs and great if we get to see one year of Aguero great if we get to see one year of a Tevez and and we get that amazing thing and we get to be the first to see them and, th and they will be heroes and maybe they come back at the end of their career but we're going to be there every week because the match day experience is why we're going and it's that feeling of being a part of something bigger than ourselves and I think that's very important absolutely that. We've Simon, we've killed the match day experience. That's the problem. <laughs> yep, we have. Yeah. That's a, the, one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, it needs to be fixed. And I hear an awful lot of discussion, and rightly so, by the way, on youth development, coaching development, player pathways. I think what people miss is the connection that if we don't have enough fans uh, watching at the stadiums or watching on TV, you're not ultimately going to have a professional league. So there are no pathways for players or coaches unless they go overseas. So that's something that needs to be fixed as a, fixed as a matter of extreme urgency. Mm. Um, another thing that irritates me a little bit is, you know, people saying, well, uh, it's about the playing style. It's, it's about, uh, you know, entertaining football, good football. Well, okay, who was the best team in the A-League era? Brisbane Raw played some wonderful football. Does that help their crowds at the moment when they're, you know, halfway down the ladder or struggling as they were last season? It doesn't. It's about that long-term connection to the shirt, the club, the badge that you build over generations. Now, to be fair, a lot of A-League clubs, I think, have done it, you know, reasonably well, but we're not quite at the level where we should be. The Wanderers did it very well to start off with. I maintain that those first two seasons, I reckon 2,000 people turned up every home game because they wanted to be a part of that atmosphere. And we killed that stone dead. We did that internally by not understanding our own supporters. The fans should be central to everything the game does. 
in this mm. country. And mm. for too long, we've shut them out, told them to sit down, be quiet, don't do this, don't do that. And the fans have reacted in the only way they know how. They've voted with their feet and they haven't been back. I um I remember talking to someone who went to a lot of away games and he said actually the match is an annoying part of the away day. The whole away day is is a great experience and the match if it goes badly can actually be the worst part of it. You know, it's about, you know, being with your mates, going on the train, going, you know, singing all the songs, it, that connection. That that's why they're going. So I think, you know, again, and I think it's a good point you made about the Wanderers. The Wanderers football wasn't particularly great. And we talk about these big name marquees and Shinji Ono was a big name and, and I think we loved watching him play. But I would bet there weren't that many people in the Wanderers who were coming just for Shinji Ono. It was the whole thing. It was the connection. It was the atmosphere. And, you know, it was the results as well there. They had some great results early on. Um, and you saw when they went to Spotless, they completely lost that connection to their home and it, it didn't feel the same. Well, I, think, I think I mean you're right that the, the changing grounds certainly hurt them uh, there's no doubt about that but I think um, you know that it had happened before then that disconnection had started um, and you can go back to you know as I wrote in the Guardian article you know the article that was written in the, uh, the Sydney Sunday Telegraph about the hooligans it's not to say that there weren't some bad apples in, in the A-League fan cart but you know, I think A-League fans, football fans in general, uh, decided that they'd had enough of being labelled criminals and thugs and they looked for the game to provide the response and the leaders didn't provide it. And I think you can trace a lot of the current problems back to that moment because the fans just went, well, if you're not going to support us, why should we support you? So yeah, I think that's got to be fixed. Uh, I think the current leaders do know that, but let's see it in action. As I say, it has to be executed. But it's also law enforcement's view of football um, and the way that they treat the fans as well. I mean, the over-policing for the Melbourne derbies, for example. I mean, you know, I remember a couple of years ago my cameraman writing to me and saying, you know, I'm engulfed by police as opposed to fans. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, and, and, and just being so frustrated at, at hearing that, Simon, because when you consider the amount of arrests that are occurring, saying I'm not using this to, to incite a code war, but when you consider what's going on in AFL and NRL and even cricket to an extent and how many fans are getting arrested there, it's, you know, polar opposites uh, compared to what we're having arrested in, you know, a, an entire season versus a single game for them. So I think that's one of the concerns as well is trying to get the mainstream to view football differently. But it's not in their interests because they're not invested in the game they're not pumping money into it you know you watch the today show for example on channel nine all they're talking about is the voice why because that's their premium product that's what they're investing money in that's what they're pushing out um you know dare i say does football need to end up on a mainstream broadcaster for it to be given the attention that it deserves simon well, look, we've had that in the past. You could arguably say that we've still got it because, you know, we, we have a game a week on ABC uh, in the past. Obviously, it's been on SBS. We've had it on Channel 10. Um, but it's not really been promoted, um, you know, well enough for various reasons, you know, financial reasons or, you know, in, in terms of Channel 10, they probably didn't, you know, have much of a, 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 an investment in, in that in that point emotionally. Um, love Simon they gave no love to it they took the stream straight from Fox Sports they didn't give it any promotion they didn't put their own talent to it they really didn't want to see it grow that was the issue that I had yeah well I don't disagree with that Lucy I think you know where we're at as a game now and this goes back to an earlier point that we were discussing is you know maybe this innovation in terms of technology gives us uh, a different opportunity 
you know, maybe we can do it ourselves in our own way and sell to football fans. I think we've, you know, we've pandered to the mainstream for too long. We've desperately tried to be a part of it and, and, and make ourselves feel as though we belong. And at the end of the day, 15 years later, where are we? We're still in pretty much the same spot. We've had, you know, ups and downs. There's been some great moments. But overall, we're still in that sort of mindset that, uh, you know, we don't quite belong. Maybe we have to do it for ourselves, for our own customer base, for, our, you know, football content by football people for football people. The mainstream will come if it works because they get curious about it. You know, as we saw with the RBBs, we see with the grand finals when the Socceroos are doing well or the Matildas are doing well. They turn up. The football fans are there in this country. It's just that at the moment they're not quite connected to it for whatever reason. I think what they want, and I'm only speaking for myself here because I'm a football fan myself, is they want authenticity. You know, they, they want at the end to a closed competition. They want promotion and relegation. They don't want salary caps. They want a domestic transfer system. They want all the things that they're familiar with that looks, smells, and feels like football. And at the moment, I think we're, you know, we we tried to be too mainstreamy into, you know, remember the ridiculous Star Wars round with, you know, we had to pause on the commentary because Luke Skywalker was walking. I mean, please, come on, you know, um, you've got to get back to putting football first, which, you know, again, is one of James Johnson's central tenants. So tenants, not tenants. Let's, let's hope it works. Time will tell. I want to breeze through remaining news stories. I'm conscious of the time here, but also Western Sydney Wanderers have made the announcement that they've appointed Jean-Paul de Marigny as the A-League club's head coach until the end of the 2020-2021 season. Uh, they've basically set him two KPIs and said, we want you to win trophies and to develop juniors. Um, that's something that they've essentially really focused on at this point. Um, but your reaction first, Simon, to the news that JP will be at the helm uh, for this period? Well, look, I'm really pleased for JP. He's, he's had to wait a long time for another uh, you know, head coaching opportunity. Um, I think his last one was, was it Marconi back in the NSL back in the day? Yeah. Uh, he's been in a few places. Um, so I'm pleased for JP. I think he's, you know, he's earned his opportunity. Thought they did quite well under his his temporary leadership after Marcus Barbel left. Certainly mm -hmm. instilled, uh, you know, a bit of a bit more feel about them. There's a bit more structure to them. Um, now his challenge, obviously, is to take that on. You know, the Wanderers are a big club in A League terms. They they should be challenging for trophies, and they've been in the doldrums for too long. So. Um, yeah, you know, he's he's got an opportunity now. Let's see if he can take it. In terms of the kids, I mean, it's it's no surprise that, you know, that they've got probably the best big batch of uh, promising young kids in the country because they're in one of the biggest talent factories of football in the country there in Western Sydney. And they've got this great new training facility. So, you know, if, if he can't make the best out of some of those kids, then um, he probably won't be in the job very long. No, we won't. And they are a club with big expectations. Solich, before we move on to the next news story, I'm really delighted for JP. I think he's a wonderful guy. Um, for those of us, Simon, that know him as well, he's always been such a delight to deal with over the years, uh, you know, on the sidelines and in the A-League. Uh, but the real test will come in the form of whether or not he will be able to deliver trophies for them. And I don't think that the Wanderers will be wanting to wait on that either. No, and, and they shouldn't. Like someone said, they're a big club and they should have big expectations. But I think uh, it's actually going to be really interesting to see how they react to this kind of condensed 
end of the season because the pressure's off them. Obviously, they haven't had a great season anyway. So, And I think we're going to see, actually, they're one of the teams that have been more settled in terms of, you know, obviously all their players haven't had to move state or anything like that, so they have that bit of the advantage. You know, um, they haven't had too many player losses or anything like that. So I think now is a good time. You know, they've had time to reset as well. JP's had more time with them, you know, in theory, to get across his ideas, although he was, I think, you know, doing most of the training sessions anyway under Babel. So uh, I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting how they go in this small, you know, hub A-League version, and uh, we'll see the early signs of whether it was a good decision or not. Mm, let's move on to this massive news story, and the man uh, that's joining us as a special guest today will have a lot to say, I'm sure, about this particular subject, and it's that Manchester City's ban from European football has been overturned, allowing the club to compete in next season's Champions League. The Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled on Monday that City did not did not apparently breach financial fair play rules by disguising equity funding as sponsorship. Sports highest court also reduced a fine for failing to cooperate with UEFA from 30 million euros to 10 million euros. Kaz said in a statement that most of the alleged breaches were either not established or time barred. Simon, over to you. Your reaction <laughs> to news. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that curveball, Lucy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As a City fan, I'm pleased that they'll be able to take part in the Champions League for the, the next two years. I think there are a couple of elements to this. You know, first of all, I do think it's pretty obvious that City broke the rules um, and they did sign up to those rules. So they should be punished, all right? They're getting a fine. The second part of it is were the rules correct in the first place? And this is the problem I have with it. I don't know if you've heard... Uh, a, a quite brilliant rant by Gary Neville that was on Sky Sports. It's been doing the rounds over the last couple of uh, days since this decision from Cass to overturn um, the ban on the, the social media sites. And Gary pretty much echoes my thoughts on this. He says that financial fair play is essentially a turkey. Um, it's, uh, it, it's not... Um, sorry, I, I'm going to have to just plug my... Uh, my laptop again. It just told me my Mac's about to go to sleep unless it's plugged into a power outlet. So I'm going to give me one second and I will come back. No problem. No problem. No problem. Uh, talking point while we wait for Simon to come back to us. Um, Stolich, um, in the interim, what was your reaction initially? Sum it uh, up. Well, my reaction was not surprised. I mean, I didn't think that City would kind of lose out for two years because I, I thought that um, – you know, the the thing is I don't really have much faith in UEFA or FIFA when it comes to doing things that are against their interest. And for me, it's definitely in their interest to have Manchester City playing in the Champions League. So that was always kind of um, going to be a thing. As for the decision, well, I also have a problem with the fact that PSG weren't found yeah. guilty of because PSG have clearly been, you know, financial doping. I think the thing that uh, frustrates me a little bit is – that these rules seem to have more of an effect on some teams and less of an effect on other teams. And I think uh, an example of that is um, Roma felt, they said that they kind of had to sell Salah to Liverpool for $34 million because they needed to have a certain amount of money in the bank for a certain amount of time to qualify for Europe. And they rely so much more on that income generated from Europe. So, you know, it's affecting them, it's affecting kind of, the, some other European clubs, but then the bigger, bigger clubs. And we're not only talking Manchester City, we're talking PSG. Frankly, we're talking Madrid, Barcelona, all these clubs that are capable of sending incredible amounts of money 
Uh, and it, it just seems to apply much less to them. Simon, you finish your point and, and to what Gary Neville was saying, which was that this is the, the, the slap in the face that financial fair play needed. But um, finish your point on that. Well, look, financial fair play was set up with the right intentions. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's, it, its logic has been twisted and it's been uh, constructed in a way that maintains the old money cartel. The old big clubs, the Real Madrid's, the Barcelona's, the Man United's, the Bayern Munich's, and essentially pulls up the drawbridge and says to the other clubs who are aspirational, you can't be a part of this club. And that was what was happening. If you remember in 1992, they changed the old European Cup, made it into the Champions League. That was to deliver more revenue for the big clubs by having more games. Um, and as that went on over time, of course, it became the same top four in England or the same top three in Italy or wherever it was, qualifying for those leagues every year. Because every time they competed in the Champions League, they got more and more money. So the financial gap was going wider and wider and wider and wider. That's why in countries like Norway, you saw Rosenborg win 13 titles in a row because the money they got from the Champions League meant they were streets ahead of their domestic competition. Now, the one thing that the old G14 didn't bank on when they set this up in their own interests was that clubs like Man City and Chelsea and PSG would go out and find a sugar daddy and bridge that gap. Now, Chelsea did it first of all, and they sort of caught that for a little while, but when Man City did it, then they were starting to steal those Champions League places and affect their revenues too often. So that's when the financial fair play screws started to tighten. Michel Platini admitted this in an interview with Martin Samuel of the Daily Mail as long ago as 2013. Platini tried to destroy, and he succeeded, the G14 as a block. But the caveat to that was he had to leave their Champions League revenues alone. So don't let anybody be fooled by the fair in fair play. All of that self And by the way, Man City are just as guilty of that because they now want to pull up the drawbridge as well. Now yeah. we're not part of the big club. So it's, it's all about, you know, what suits me. And uh, I think old money has had a slap in the face. Uh, City probably deserve it too, to be fair. Um, but I think what will emerge is something very different. And, you know, my last point on this, sorry to go on, but the fairest way, if you, if you really want fair play, then stop the arms race. Say to UEFA, you take all the Champions League money and you give it to the national associations for redistribution as far down as the grassroots that benefits everybody in football. You reckon the big clubs will go for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, well, Pep understandably was delighted uh, with the news. I think there was a selfie doing the rounds of him and his staff uh, with some big smiles on their faces. But he's since come out also and said that uh, he would like everyone to apologise to him. Stolich, let's take a listen to that clip if we can. We should be uh, apologise because, uh, like I said many times, if we did something wrong, uh we will accept absolutely the decisions for the UEFA or for the CAS because you did something wrong. But we don't expect uh, for Liverpool or Tottenham or Arsenal or Chelsea or Wolves or Liverpool and all the clubs are going to defend, but we can defend ourselves. We have the right to defend ourselves when we believe that the, what we have done is correct, is, uh, is right. 
and three judges, independent judges, said this. So today is a good day. Yes, it was a good day for the football because we play with the same rules of financial fair play for all the clubs in Europe, all of them. And we break these financial fair plays, we will be banned. We would have been banned. But uh, we can defend ourselves because, like I said many times, the club believe it was right what we have done. Mm, they believe they were right with what they've done. Well, Jos Mourinho, in true Mourinho fashion, has come out and blasted the decision and called it disgraceful and one that will potentially mark the end of financial fair play. Can we take a listen to Mourinho's comments as well, Stolich, while we're here? In relation to the decision, I think uh, in any case is a disgraceful decision uh, because if Man City is not guilty of it, I think to be punished with some some million is a disgrace as a decision. If you are not guilty, you are not punished. By the other way, if they are guilty, you should be banned. So it's also a disgraceful decision. So in any case, the decision is um, is a disaster. Why you pay eight or nine million or whatever if you are not guilty? So if you are not, if they are not guilty, the decision is a disgrace. If they are guilty, the decision is also a disgrace because if you are guilty, you should be banned from from the competition. So my critic is not to to Manchester City at all. I I am nobody to criticize. I am nobody to to know if they are guilty or if they are not guilty. My critic, of course, is for the decision power. Point there, doesn't he, Simon? Because if they're not guilty, why are they being forced to pay these money? So th this is Jose Mourinho, former manager of Chelsea, who started <laughs> whatever it was. Oh, yeah, okay. No, no, no worries. Look, he's got a point. Um, and, and I don't disagree with that point of view. I, I think this, the whole thing at the top level of football needs a rethink. Um, I, I think Jose is perfectly within his rights to question that if they've been fined, why are they not being banned? You can't be half guilty. You're either guilty or you're not. Um, but equally, I think if you look into the financial fair play rules, you will see that those rules are, are a, an absolute uh, nonsense anyway. You know, you can put it in, in essence like this. this is, if, you, if you buy a small business... If you had financial fair play rules in place in everyday business, a grocer's shop or a, a clothing salon or whatever, and you buy a business, you invest in it, and people say, well, okay, you can't put any money into it. You've got it. You can only do a proportion of, of what you earn. You'd go, huh? Mm. I mean, this is my business. I bought it. I'd, if I've got money, I'm going to put money into that business to try and grow it, to try and get you know the rewards from that. You can't, if football is a commercial game, and we all know it is, you know, that started as long ago as the 70s when, you know, FIFA struck up partnerships with Adidas and Coca-Cola and all, all the rest of it. You can't be half in and half out. And the, the theory that this is put in to protect clubs from going bankrupt, Man City aren't going bankrupt, let me tell you that. They won't go bankrupt because the owners who've been investing in it for a long time now, well over a decade, have got a lot of money. Why shouldn't they be able to invest that in their club? What you're saying to aspirational clubs with financial fair play is you cannot join our club because you'll never have the revenues to be able to spend a proportion of it to join that club. So you stay where you are 
and we'll cream off all the money at the top. It's a nonsense, the whole thing. Mm, it's, I couldn't agree more. Stolich, one final point to add to that before we move on to our final news story. Well, I was just going to ask Simon, as a, as a kind of lifelong Man City fan, how you feel about the owners just in general? Because I think obviously they've kind of been good owners in that they've invested a lot in the club. And, you know, we see a lot of terrible owners kind of run clubs into the ground. But City have gone from strength to strength, play amazing football. You know, even great local youngsters are coming through, like Phil Foden, the local academy's been built up. But then, uh, then of course, you know, and I think uh, Newcastle fans are experiencing this as well. There is a kind of a bit of a tinge to it when it comes from these foreign owners, especially when these foreign owners, maybe we don't agree with their human rights, you know, rules that they have in their countries and all kinds of things. What is your thoughts as a lifelong City fan um, about having kind of these foreign owners uh, in the club? Look, there's, there's a, a fantastic book that was written by a very good journalist called David Conn called, called uh, Richer Than God. Uh, if you get the chance, read it. Not just Man City fans, but football fans in general. It's all about the takeover. And David Conn, lifelong City fan, who grew up in Manchester, the same as me, um, he's left completely cold by the whole thing. He's lost a lot of his love for Man City and for modern football in general because of the way the game has gone. And I've got a lot of sympathy for that view. Um, but there is a quote towards the end of the book from another City fan that he interviews, which I think sort of sums it up for me. And the quote is this, I'm not really in favour of foreign owners with all this money from countries that we don't know a lot about. But if we have to have foreign owners, then this mob are about the best we can get. And that sort of sums it up a bit for me. I'm uneasy about uh, the way that modern football is in general. And City are obviously one of the major driving forces behind that. There, there's a large part of me that misses the old City when we were a bit crap, let's be honest. Um, going standing on terraces in the second and third division and having the crack, you know, that's all changed. But it's not just City that's changed. It's football that's changed at the top level. So I do miss that. Um, I certainly have uh, extreme reservations about, you know, the UAE's human rights policy. Um, I make no bones about that. On the other hand, what I'd say is there's also stuff that goes on in Manchester that people are probably not aware of here. For example... You know, they've, they've made the match day experience at City fantastic. The complex that they've built is not just, you know, out of this world, but it also includes things like educational institutions, libraries, um, housing for local people, employment for local people, um, cheaper season tickets for old age pensioners, of which my dad is one. His season ticket price went down for the last three or four years, which, you know, that's pretty good. It doesn't make sexy headlines. Uh, there's gaming rooms for young kids, for parents to leave them, for, you know, supervised, which is good on match day for now so they can go and have a drink. So they do a lot of things behind the scenes that are very, very good. So it's, it's a balance. And overall, am I happy with them as owners? Yeah, because they brought us a lot of success, but they're a part of a modern football that's, uh, you know, is, is not how I grew up experiencing football. And I do miss the terraces. I do miss the old city and, and that feeling of being an underdog and um, everybody actually quite liking us because we weren't united. So I miss that. Um, but, you know, life doesn't stay the same, does it? So you've got to move with the times, I guess. Um, that about sums it up, I think. If we, if, if we have to have them, this mob are about the best we can get. Mm, they're also going to give you, I think, close to $150 million to go out and spend... Uh... <laughs> 
Indeed. We'd be happy. It's interesting. And one final point I'll make on that. Hearing you talk about City and reflecting on how they used to be, you know, that's how many of us feel about the NSL and how I would feel about Sydney Croatia or now as we know Sydney United. I mean, it was a semi-professional competition. You know, it all had it. It had so many faults, but I still look back at it through rose-coloured glasses because that's where my love for football developed. And I think that's, you know, that's where a lot of our identities were forged as children of immigrants, as immigrants that had come to Australia. Um, so it's nice hearing you speak about it in that way because that's what you fell in love with, not with what you're seeing right now. So it's your identity, Lucy. That's what it is. And, and, you know, the love for the badge is what you were saying earlier as opposed to who's wearing the shirt. Um, I want to finish up on this note. It was a fantastic little story that came out. Wickham Wanderers, they're going to play in the second tier of English football for the first time next season after edging past Oxford United in the League One playoff at Wembley. Um, a fantastic story, of course, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, they'd, they'd been able to achieve this success. But because Akin Fenwa, um, one of the Wickham Wanderers players, he had said post-match, uh, let's actually take a listen to what he had to say as Solich. This is not the first time we've met under these circumstances. No, is it even sweeter this time around? So much more. Hold on, hold on. Tell me what we did, because I, I, I don't know what we did. Tell me what we just did. Well, you've got yourself a place in the championship. I don't think they heard you in the back. Up on no. <laughs> Tell me what we did. You've got yourself a place in the championship. Look, look. Let me calm down. Let me calm down. First and foremost, yeah, I want to thank God. Because today he made the impossible possible. Amen. <laughs> and my, my next story, four years ago, four years ago I stood in front of you and I was technically unemployed. Four years ago I was here and I was technically unemployed. That's correct. And what did you say? Let me tell you something. The only person that can hit me up on WhatsApp this time is Klopp. So we can celebrate together. Do you get me? Brilliant. Don't get more real than that. And I love the emotion. I love the genuine excitement that you can see splashed across his face because it's almost as if not he himself can believe what's actually happened to them. But he made the call out to Klopp there. And guess what Klopp did? So let's roll the tape. Baba said, hit me up on WhatsApp. But he could get in contact with me on WhatsApp. Here we go. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you were all life, at least a championship player. Um, and now, finally, you are there. Well done. Great, great victory. Yeah. Um, even in strange times, I hope you celebrate. Appropriate. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Come on. Come on, aye. Bap, bap, clock, you're a legend. We did it. I told you, hit me up on WhatsApp. We celebrate together. Boom, you'll never walk alone. Bitch modes. I love the Wicked Wanderer story. I think in... Back in 2014, they almost dropped out of the uh, the English uh, football league, and they started off this campaign. What they're saying is relegation favourites, and now to be in this situation, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic reared its ugly head. They were able to qualify for the playoffs via the points per game ruling that they are determined in all of this. Um, it's such a fabulous story, but to to see something like this, it really does warm the cockles of your heart, doesn't it? Don't you just love Jurgen Klopp uh, for yes, doing that? 
he's such a good guy, isn't he? Um, yeah. You know, and I'm no Liverpool fan, as everybody knows. I but am, I am. Is, I know you are. Um, <laughs> I look at other people, but you know, it, for him to, he, that's just the sort of thing he does. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen Akin Fenwa play. He is, I mean, he, he's probably like 120 kilos. He's massive. <laughs> and totally solid. Defenders just bounce off him. Um, so he's a real character, and uh, obviously Jurgen Klopp is another. I've, I've been at the uh, their stadium, Adams Park, a couple of times, called a couple of games there many, many years ago. They came a long way. They came all the way from non-league, Wickham Wanderers. They played at an old stadium called Lokes Park back in the day, but they built this new one out in the council trading estate, I think, and they've come a long way since then. So great story up in the championship. It's like a Wimbledon, a modern-day Wimbledon, that is. Brilliant. Great news story for football, Stolich. Nice way to end on this as well. Uh, so much going on as well. Just quickly, I want to make mention of Atalanta and the football that mm. they've been playing. They have been on fire, my lord. They won 6-2 this morning. They did. Uh, they drew 2-2 with uh, Juve in Serie A on the weekend, and they honestly should have got the win. It, it's very disappointing. But, uh, you know, the story with them is incredible because – they have the budget of basically a team in the championship and they're second in Serie A. They're in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Actually, I think they are an outside chance to actually win the Champions League because I think they're playing the best football in all of Europe right now. Um, and also, of course, one of the kind of the epicenters of coronavirus in Italy was their town, uh, Bergamo. And so they, you know, often a lot of the really horrible images that you saw were coming out of their city. So for them to really have this moment where they're not only taking on all of Italy, but all of Europe, it's incredible. And the, the football that they play is brilliant. But Nick, let me ask you a question. Wasn't Atalanta the team that Agnelli from Juventus said they shouldn't yeah. be in the Champions League because they have no history? Careful yes. what you wish for, folks, with this fair play. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Agnelli Senior also came down post-match. It's one of my favourite stories, actually. Foz relayed it to me once upon a time. He came down and he said to the, the coach uh, after they'd won, uh, you won today, but I was not entertained. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Telling you that. Uh, speaking of entertainment, um, Norwich, of course, they already have been relegated, but this has been entertaining to watch the tussle for the fourth or third and fourth spots within the Premier League at the moment as they stand. Chelsea, they defeated Norwich this morning. I mean, it's no great feat. My mother could defeat Norwich at this point, given that they've been in at the moment. Um, but how's it looking for you, Simon, as we look to wrap up now? You've got Liverpool, of course, they've already won the title. They're in first, Man City second. Chelsea third on 63, and Leicester now have slipped to fourth on 59. Mm. Is this looking pretty solid to you, or could we see some more movement? Because between Leicester and Man United, there's only they're only separated by goal difference. And then you've got Wolves also breathing down Man United's necks uh, in sixth position. Hmm. I've got a feeling United might sneak up four spots, mm. which I never thought I was going to say a couple of months ago because I thought Leicester were almost, you know, stonewall for, for the Champions League next season. But they, they seem to have dropped away. And United, I think, uh, um, they've found, you know, it's taken a while under Solskjaer, but they had to give him that time. They chopped and changed their manager so many times. And he was under pressure a few months ago. But I think they're starting to reap the rewards now. Pogba looks as though he's come back out of this, you know, COVID break. Different player. Uh, Fernandez has, has been a tremendous acquisition for them in midfield. Uh, Rashford has scored, you know, a bag full of goals for them this season. And they've got this young kid, Mason Greenwood, who really excites me. 
um, as an Englishman, you know, as much as anything else going forward, maybe not for United so much. So <laughs> I think he's got the elements in place. Uh, and I reckon, yeah, United might just sneak fourth, maybe even better, but certainly fourth. And uh, Stolich, you and I are massive uh, Bielsa fans. Uh, I'm not sure about you, Simon, but we are just massive devotees here at the World Game. Um, there is a chance now. It's looking as though Leeds are on the verge of coming up to the top flight for the first time in 16 years. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm buzzing about this. Stolich, you too? Uh, yes, fingers crossed. You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of Bielsa teams just collapse at all kinds of times. So <laughs> who knows? I mean, you would think it's nearly impossible for them to get it from here. I think they'd have to lose their last three games. Brentford would have to win three in a row. They've but done it before, Nick. <laughs> that's it. It's Leeds. It's Bielsa. I mean, we're going to keep watching, and uh, I think it's fantastic. And yeah, if, they, it, if they don't go up this year, mate, forget it. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think Bielsa's gone if they don't go up this year. I don't know where he's going to go. But, no, uh, you can't yeah. get rid of Bielsa. I'll happily have him at any A-League club here that's looking. But, uh, gentlemen, Simon Hill, you more specifically, it has been such a delight to have you here on our show. Everyone that has been watching today has just been delighted with your contributions. Um, and you are such a beloved figure in the Australian football community, notwithstanding us here at the World Game. But, uh, you know, we're such huge fans of yours. You're an immense talent. Your contributions to football, as I said, um, they cannot be underestimated. And I'm so glad that you are now in a position where you're able to come out and speak freely about the game and that we finally have more voices being added to the conversation and a voice like yours. It is golden, my friends, so take care of yourself. We can't wait to hear you back on SCN for the final series and to listen to you on your podcast venture with uh, Joko Cullitz and Craig Moore now and to find out what your other projects are. We're looking forward to keeping you on Australian soil because you are, as I said, so beloved here. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for those kind words, Lucy, and uh, Nick as well. And thanks for having me on your show. It's good to be back. 14 years, eh? Yes, 14 years. My God, we've waited a long time, but for you, Simon Hill, we'll wait an eternity. So thank you so much. Um, for everyone that's joined us today, thank you so much for engaging. That is why we join you here on our Wednesday program. It's to engage with the fans. So for all of you that wrote in your questions and your comments, we really appreciate your time. We are here every Wednesday, usually from about 1 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, but for special guests like Simon Hill today, for example, we'll make exemptions. Um, also, tomorrow, live from 1.30 p.m., myself and Nick Stoll and a special guest will be coming to you with chats about the A-League. It's an A-League specific program previewing what we've got in store for the remainder of this season. So much to talk about. We've got a lot of players that have uh, lended their voices to the show as well. So we're looking forward to hearing what their expectations are for the remainder of the season. So don't forget to tune into that one. 1.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Come and join us live across Twitter and Facebook. We're looking forward to your company then. And for all of the stories, of course, that we have discussed, do head to the World Game website. We've got news, stories, opinions, videos, you name it, you'll be able to see it on the World game website and that's my time to wrap it up now because my daughter has just opened the door and come in and wreak some havoc in true Gamero form so thank you everybody thanks so much for your company and we'll see you again very soon ciao